Well, today we continue in our series in the I Am Statements of Jesus from the Gospel of John. We come back again to look on the account of the raising of Lazarus from the dead. It is in this story where Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Let's pray to him this morning. Dear Jesus, dear resurrection and life, we pray now in these moments, you would be glorified, your name would be lifted high, your truth would penetrate our lives, and we would leave this building more in tune with you, Jesus. Amen. Well, please open your Bibles with me to John chapter 11, and let's recap where we are. A messenger has has come to Jesus telling him very simply that Jesus is very ill. He says, Lord, he whom you love is ill. Then Jesus says there in verse 4, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now we know Lazarus dies. And we know from verses 11 through 14 that Jesus knows Lazarus is going to die. And we also know from the story that Lazarus doesn't stay dead. And Jesus knows that Lazarus is not going to stay dead. As he says in verse 11, I go to awaken him. So when Jesus says this illness does not lead to death, he knows that Lazarus will pass through death. But ultimately, He will be miraculously brought back to life. So in fact, this illness does not lead to the death of Lazarus. So what does this illness lead to? What does the verse tell us? What does this whole story of Mary and Martha and Lazarus lead to? What's it about? It leads to the manifest glory of God being revealed so that Jesus himself would be glorified through it. See, the raising of Lazarus is the crowning miracle of Jesus' earthly ministry. His full deity and his full power indisputably on display for all to see. In John 9, the religious leaders, they argue and they try to dispute this miracle of Jesus of healing the man born blind. But here in the raising of Lazarus, there's no argument. There's no debate. Literally hundreds of people knew that Lazarus was dead. They knew that Lazarus had been dead for four days. And they saw with their own eyes Lazarus come forth out of the grave. So indisputable, so unquestionable was this miracle that we find out in John chapter 12 that not only did the Jewish religious leaders want to kill Jesus, but they also plotted to kill Lazarus. John 12, 9-11 says, When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came, not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. Because on account of him, many Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. You know, the very next thing that happens in the timeline of Jesus and his earthly ministry is his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, which we celebrate as Palm Sunday, the start of his Passion Week. 
People from miles and miles around came to see Lazarus. They wanted to see for themselves this undeniable miracle that attested, that proved that Jesus was the Messiah, that he was the very Son of God. Many, many Jews saw Lazarus and believed in Jesus. But we know thousands upon thousands of people died during Jesus' earthly ministry. But it was this one particular death that included this one miraculous particular resurrection. It was not just a miracle, it was a sign. It was clearly pointing to the fact that this one particular person, Jesus, that was standing right there in their midst, was the divine Son of God, the Messiah. See, the primary reason for this miracle wasn't so that Lazarus could live longer on the earth. The primary reason for this miracle wasn't so that Mary and Martha could have their brother back. No, the primary reason for this miracle was to showcase the glory of God. To display for all to see. For God to be glorified. Irrefutably proving that Jesus is the divine, true Son of God. Folks, I fear that here's where we often miss out. Here's where we often get things twisted and flipped upside down. God's miracles in our lives are not about us. God's miracles in our lives are not about us. They're about His glory. See, the wonders and beauty of creation is not for us. The wonder and beauty in creation is to the glory of God. Even the very salvation of our souls is not about us. It's to the glory of Jesus Christ and all that he has done. We get so focused on what God has done for us, or what he's not done for us, we get so focused on our lives, our future, our comfort, our wants, that we can totally miss out on the fact that the whole purpose for our very existence is to glorify God. Our lives are not about, what God, what can you do for me? And yet he so bountifully supplies our every need in Christ Jesus. They're not even about, you know, God, what can I do for you? And yet it's the very highest privilege of our lives to to serve Jesus. In reality, our lives are about giving God glory. About him receiving glory from our lives. His name receiving the acclaim that's due only him. Think about that with me a moment. Think about that. How does that truth change the perspective of your success or blessings in life? See, your success and blessings in life are not about you. Your success and blessings in life have been given to you so that they could reflect God's glory and they could shine in your life and you could give them back to the glory of God. Is that the way you see your life? Blessings? Is it about him? Just think now if that's your focus on God's glory and how it would change our perspective on the losses and the hardships and the difficulties of our lives. How would our perspective change if we saw our struggles, our losses, our our life challenges as an opportunity for God to be glorified? Well, we talked about it in last week's sermon. How does Jesus show his love? We are most loved by Jesus when Jesus 
gives us Jesus. When in blessings or in difficulty, He's the one who gets the glory. See, life difficulties are not a sign that Jesus doesn't love you, just as earthly blessings are not a sign that Jesus does love you. The truth is that we're often through life difficulties is when Jesus reveals his love and reveals his glory to us. How often do we spurn the very love that God has for us by not looking for his love, his wisdom, his glory in the midst of the heartaches and loss and questions and doubts of our lives. God doesn't mainly love us by giving us earthly wants. And he doesn't mainly love us by not sparing us the hardships and sufferings and heartaches of life. Why? So that we might see his glory. So that we might receive his glory. See, God mainly loves us by showing us himself, by showing us his glory. That's exactly what Jesus did for us. His incarnation, his sinless life, his his substitutionary death on the cross, his amazing, victorious resurrection, he gave himself to us and showed us his glory. Through his humility, his hardship, his suffering and pain, he showed us his love, he showed us his glory, he gave us himself. See, it's not about us. It's not about the good things in our life or the bad things in our life. It's not about the happy times of our lives or the sad times of our lives. It's not about the times of plenty and bounty. It's not about the times of loss and difficulty. It's not about us. Our lives are about Him, all of it, about His glory. As verse 4 says, it is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. You see, we're not only most loved by Jesus when Jesus gives us Jesus. We most see his glory when Jesus gives us Jesus. So let's specifically look how Jesus loves those so close to him in this passage. First, Jesus shows his love by taking us through risk. Please turn in your Bibles there to John chapter 11 and follow along as I start reading at verse 5. It says that Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. And you want to go back there again? And Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go, that we may die with him. See, at the end of John chapter 10, after Jesus had clearly 
again claim to be the divine, the very Son of God, the Jews in Jerusalem seek to kill him and arrest him. So in, in John 10, 40, it says in response to those threats that Jesus went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first. And there he remained. That's where he received the messenger about Lazarus being ill. Now he tells the disciple in verse 6, he wants to go back to Judea. The disciples are understandably concerned. I mean, look there at verse 8. They say to him, Rabbi, you know, don't you remember they were just trying to stone you and kill you there? Hey, Jesus, what, what you want to do is dangerous. What you want us to do by following you is dangerous for us. Are you sure you want to go back to the very place they were just trying to kill you? Jesus essentially says to the disciples in verses 9 and 10, that's not going to happen. I'm walking in the light of day. The time of darkness has not yet arrived. This comment of Jesus is similar to the one he makes in John 9, 4, where he says, We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. The point he is making here is that there is an appointed time when his ministry will be over. When the day is over. When the night is coming. But it's not going to be on this trip to Bethany. Jesus is the light of the world and he's still walking in the light of daytime. Here's a very interesting side note about time in the Bible. They obviously had no clocks. You know the word minute does not even appear in the Bible. Because there was no such thing as a minute. The word hour is used throughout the Bible, and it just means a unit of time. It didn't specifically mean just 60 exact minutes. So what does Jesus mean when he says, are there not 12 hours in a day? We know that sometimes there are less daylight hours and sometimes more. But in Bible times, every day had 12 hours of daylight. The daylight of every day was broken down into 12 roughly equal units that they called hours. Every day had 24 hours, 12 hours or units of light, and 12 hours or units of darkness. You know, if you know, that's how sundials work. It doesn't tell you what time of the day a sundial doesn't, like we think of a clock. It told you what time of the day it was by how many units of time the sun had moved creating a shadow. For example, perhaps you remember that the Jews on their Sabbath day starts when? It starts on Friday night, the Sabbath says, at sunset. And it goes to Saturday night at sunset. Because the only way to tell time before clocks, the only way to know the length of one certain day, was to gauge it by the rising and the setting of the sun. It's only when the clock-driven era started that we started to, you know, day to start and stop when it became midnight. Anyway, the point uh, that Jesus is making is that it's still the daylight of his ministry and nothing is going to happen to him on this trip to Bethany. Now, the disciples don't get it. They don't understand it. Now, we see this over and over and over again. The disciples struggling to understand Jesus, especially when it comes to his death and resurrection. It's easier for us to understand because we have the full revelation of God in the Bible. But we must remember these disciples are in the midst of it all. 
even though they don't understand it, the disciples show their loyalty and their faith in Jesus and follow him to Bethany. Thomas, that we most often call him, not the twin, what do we call Thomas? Doubting Thomas. It's this Thomas. And what did he say? He said from the heart that all the disciples resonated with, he said, let us also go that we may die with him. Now, they didn't understand, but they were willing to go. You know, they didn't understand, but they were willing to follow. They were willing to risk. They were willing to do hard, even dangerous things. If that is where Jesus wanted to lead them. You see, Jesus doesn't mean when you follow him that you'll be in safety. Sometimes he leads us to risk. Sometimes he calls us to do hard things. Sometimes he challenges us, Jesus does, to put aside earthly aspirations, put aside wealth and comfort and homes and cars and ease. And instead, I'm calling you down a path of sacrifice and service to him. Sometimes in his love, he leads us to follow him even in places where it's dangerous. Because we all know the greatest blessings of our lives have nothing to do with earthly things and only ever to do with following Jesus wherever he leads. Now we all know that the men and women who join our military, they know that when they're joining, that they might have to put their lives into harm's way to defend their country. They willingly join knowing that sacrifice and hardship is going to be part of their future. Out of love for country, millions of men and women have willingly sacrificed to defend our country, to secure our freedom. All gave some. All sacrificed some. But some gave all. Some sacrificed their lives. That's why we so honor our veterans. But folks, the same is true for each one of us. For every believer. Because when we willingly gave our full allegiance to our Lord, when we willingly pledged our lives to follow our Savior, we gave Him the right, the ownership of our lives. He is our commander. We're on His mission. He gets to deploy His troops as He sees fit. Our lives are not about our goals, but His. Our lives are not about fulfilling our mission, but His. Our lives are not about getting what we want, but doing what He wants. See, out of love for our Lord, out of devotion to our Savior, we willingly serve where He wants us to serve. It should be said of each of us in the Lord's army that all gave some, that all sacrificed some. And yes, even some have given all. Some have sacrificed their very lives doing exactly what Jesus wanted them to do. So think about it. How are you doing in your deployment for Jesus Christ? The question isn't, are you willing to sacrifice for him? But are you right now sacrificing for him? 
so that his mission is to be accomplished in your life? Are you right now putting God's plans first in your life? The words of the great hymn writer uh, Isaac Watts comes to mind. Am I a soldier of the cross? A follower of the Lamb? And so I fear to own his cause or blush to speak his name? Must I be carried to the skies on flowery beds of ease while others fought to win the prize and sailed through bloody seas? Are there no foes for me to face? Must I not stem the flood? Is this vile world a friend to grace to help me on to God? Sure, I must fight if I would reign. Increase my courage, Lord. I'll bear the toil, endure the pain, supported by your word. How are you doing? How are you doing in your deployment for Jesus Christ? It's his mission. Is it your mission? Jesus loves us by leading us through risk to live by faith for him. Next, we see that Jesus shows his love by teaching us the truth. We look there in our passage, starting again at verse 17. Now Jesus came. He found that Lazarus had been dead in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So Martha heard that, that Jesus was coming, so she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know. I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe you are the Christ, the Son of God, who's coming into the world. What's now the fourth day following Lazarus' death? This is usually the day of the greatest height of mourning for the dead in Jewish tradition. Martha hears that Jesus was coming and goes to meet him. And she expresses her true faith in the Lord in that great statement, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask of me, God will give you. In this passage, Martha calls Jesus Lord, Messiah, and the Son of God. Martha knew exactly who Jesus was, and she believed in him. Now, it should not be read, it should not be read into verse 22 that Martha had any thoughts about Lazarus' resurrection. Because we know later in the passage from verse 39 that she objected to Jesus rolling the stone away, the stone in front of Lazarus' tomb. I don't think the thought of Jesus bringing Lazarus back to life ever entered her mind ever once. She was resigned to the fact that her brother was dead. She uses the past tense, if you had been here. So what she is stating in verse 22 is that her faith in Jesus is not shaken by the death of her brother. 
He knows Jesus could have healed him. But since he didn't, that doesn't mean he stops being Jesus. That doesn't mean he stops being the Lord and the Master and the, and, and the Son of God. She continues to believe exactly in who he is. The heartache of the loss was real. But her faith that Jesus was the one true, all-powerful God was not shaken. It's a great example for us to follow in the midst of our loss and heartache. Then Jesus tells her that her brother is going to rise again, and she responds with great theology. She knows God's word. The Bible teaches that, that all people will be resurrected. One commentator said by, by his teachings, by his miracles, by his own resurrection, Jesus clearly taught the resurrection of the human body. He has declared once for all that death is real, and that there is life after death, and that the body will one day be raised by the power of God. Martha knew this and believed it, and it was comforting to her. But Jesus had more truth to reveal to Martha. You see, with Jesus, the resurrection of dead is not just some future reality. You see, with Jesus, the resurrection from the dead is a present reality. Jesus said, I am right now the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me right now, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. You see, Martha, though Lazarus is dead, yet shall he live. And even more than that, he is right now alive. I'm the resurrection and the life. See, believers never perish. They go from this life to the next, never leaving the love. Never leaving the life-giving fellowship of God. Everyone dies physically, yet they shall live spiritually and eternally. Our hope in Christ is not just waiting for that day of the resurrection, but our hope in Jesus is right now. Because Jesus is right now the resurrection and the life. Right now for all who believe in him. Jesus asked Martha if she believed this. And Martha resoundingly says, yes, Lord, I believe. Oh, folks, you know, one of the great ways that Jesus loves us is by teaching us the truth. Because there is comfort in the truth. There is comfort in the truth that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. I'd like us right now to look at this comic. All right? And, and learn the comfort of sound theology. There's poor Lucy. It's raining outside. Boy, look at it rain. What if, what if it floods the whole world? And then Linus with his great theology. Will, he'll never do that. In the ninth chapter of Genesis, God promised Noah that would never happen again. And the sign of the promise is the rainbow. And Lucy says, oh, that takes a great load off my mind. And there's Linus. Sound theology has a way of doing that. Right? Sound theology has a way of taking a load off of our minds. Sound theology has a way of taking the load of worry, the load of fear, the load of loss and heartache, the load of doubts and questions. Sound theology takes that off our mind. Sound theology is one of God's ways of bringing us comfort, of bringing us hope, of bringing us encouragement and, 
and changing our perspective. Jesus loves us by giving us the truth. Next we see that Jesus shows us his love by connecting with our emotions. Look with me again, starting at verse 28. So when she, Martha, had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here, and he is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he open the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Martha goes to tell Mary that Jesus is calling for her. At the end of the conversation with, with uh, Martha, Jesus must have asked her to, to go bring Mary. Jesus specifically asks Mary to come to him. The teacher is calling you. What does Jesus want to, to do with our grief? He wants us to come to him. What does Jesus want us to do with our questions? He wants us to come to him. What does Jesus want us to do with our fears, with our doubts? Come to him. And what will Jesus do? He'll help us. He'll accept us. He'll comfort us. He'll instruct us. He'll minister to us. He will reveal himself to us. Remember, when are we most loved by Jesus? When Jesus gives us Jesus. That's exactly what Jesus wants to do for Mary and for you and me to love us by giving us himself. And when Mary gets there, he, she falls at his feet. All three times we see this Mary in the scripture, she's at Jesus' feet. All three times. In Luke chapter 10, she's at his feet learning. Here in John chapter 11, she's at his feet in sorrow. And in John chapter 12, she's at his feet in worship. Mary worshipped Jesus. Jesus was her Lord. Upon seeing Christ, she says the exact same thing that Martha says. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. You can just imagine the possibility as Mary and Martha are in their grief and they're crying with each other and they're waiting for Jesus to come, that they would just say to each other over and over again, oh, if only Jesus had been here, if only he had been here, our brother would still be alive. Mary's heart was broken. She said her statement of faith through her tears. She was crying. And so were the Jews that, that had come with Mary. But these are not the quiet, solitary tears that we see in our cultural public expressions of Grief, not at all. 
These are loud, demonstrative, weeping and wailing and lamentation. This is full body sobbing. Not just Mary, but, but the crowd, her friends, were weeping in the same way. This is a powerfully emotional scene. Mary at the feet of Jesus, heartbroken, sobbing. The crowd of her friends, likewise, in deep mourning. With the scene unfolding in front of Jesus, verse 33 says that Jesus was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Deeply moved actually carries with it the connotation of anger. This is not an emotion of compassion from the Greek word, but it's an emotion of displeasure. Troubled is a word for agitated or stirred. In the Greek, this word is also not a, a, an emotion of compassion, but it's, a, but it's an emotion of conflict. It's hard to know exactly why Jesus was feeling these strong negative emotions. We don't understand because we are not told. But folks, we're told this. We're told the result of those emotions. We are told of their result. Verse 35 tells us, the shortest verse in the scriptures, Jesus wept. Now this is a different Greek word than the one used to describe Mary's crying and wailing and weeping. While Mary, you know, wailed in her sorrow, Jesus quietly shed his tears. I think that as his heart broke for those experiencing such sorrow, his anger was stirred up against the reality of sin and the consequences of death. His weeping over the tragic consequences of sin. He's weeping over the tragic consequences of their effect in our lives. He knew that he would soon crush the power of death. He knew that he would soon defeat the power of sin with his death as the atoning sacrifice for our sin, and with his resurrection and power, validate his work and his authority. Yet Isaiah 53 describes our Jesus as a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. See, it's not just great theology that gives us comfort. It's also the fact that Jesus is acquainted with grief. Jesus is acquainted with with our grief, as a Christian, you never cry alone. Never. You never cry alone. Because our God is not a distant God. Our God is not an uncaring God. He is close. He, he comes to us. He calls us to come to Him. He's caring. He sympathizes with our weaknesses. He's acquainted with our grief. One of the great ways that Jesus shows us his love is by co connecting with us in our joy and connecting with us in our sorrow. As you struggle in life with the great losses like the death of a loved one or to the smaller challenges like an overbearing boss, Jesus is not distant. Jesus is not way over there. He's close. He's calling for you to come to him. He's not uninvolved. He's there to help and to encourage and to guide and direct and to point you to his glory. See, that's what we see next. Jesus shows us his love by showing us 
His glory. Let's look again, starting in verse 38. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for, for he's been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and his feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Jesus comes to the tomb. He commands them to roll the stone away. Martha objects. This great woman of faith, right? This great woman who just a few minutes ago proclaimed her her devotion that she believed Jesus was the Messiah. She believed Jesus was the very Son of God. This same great woman of faith tries to stop Jesus. In this moment, she's so caught up in the circumstances that she's, she's lost sight of who she's talking to. Have you ever been so under your circumstances, so surrounded by your events of your life, that you start to say to Jesus, but Lord, don't do that. But Lord, no, 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 that's, that's too hard. But Lord, I don't want that. But Lord, now that's not a good idea. But Lord, now... Now, I want you to do this for me instead. But Lord, here, I have some information for you that will help you better meet my expectations. Just like Martha, we've all been there. Just like Martha, we've all told Jesus what to do. Now, Jesus' response is critically important for us to understand. He said, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? What didn't he say? very interesting about what he didn't say. What didn't he say? He didn't say to Martha, if you believe, you would see Lazarus rise from the dead. He didn't say that. Why? Because the point of the miracle has nothing to do with Lazarus. The miracle is all about the glory of God. It takes its full circle back to the beginning of the chapter. The miracle is all about God revealing his glory through the exercising of his power over death. The main point of the miracle is to unequivocally validate that Jesus, that man standing in their midst, was God, very God. Lazarus had been dead four days, and those close to the tomb, when they rolled that stone away, probably did smell the stench of death. But at that instant, when Jesus said, Lazarus, come out, that dead body came back to life. That decaying body came back to life as a healthy body. Why? How? Because Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Right now. He proved it. Jesus said in John 5, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. And those who hear will live. 
For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this. For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life. And those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. So here's the question now. On that resurrection day, when your body will be reunited with your soul, will it be reunited in the resurrection of life? Or on that day of resurrection, when your body is reunited with your soul, will it be to the resurrection of judgment? See, only you and God can answer that question. As Jesus asked Martha, so Jesus asked us today, I am the resurrection and the life. Do you believe this? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the power of your word, for these amazing truth of this account, of this extraordinary moment of revealing your glory, of revealing who you are, the resurrection and the life. So right now, in the quietness of this moment, I pray that each one of us would evaluate, as only we can, have you proclaimed your faith in Jesus? Have you said, yes, Lord, I believe you are the Christ, the Son of God. I believe that you died for my sin and rose again in victory. I believe and I follow. If you have done that, then right now, thank the Lord for the salvation he has given to you. Give him the glory and pledge your life to follow him, to love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. But if you've never proclaimed your faith in Jesus, then now as the Holy Spirit leads you, right now you can pray, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ. You're the resurrection and the life. You're the Son of God. I believe that you died for my sin and rose again in victory. I believe and I follow. Come today to he who is the resurrection and life. In his powerful, precious name we pray. Amen.